I have it done. Thanks to uh, Patricia. Uh, well, this is one of the charts, right? Uh, you know, uh, I did that at Moody. I put a whole chart on a big board, one of the empty classrooms, of the premillennial position, uh, pre-trib and mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, on-mill, and post-mill, and I just put it on the board, just just for kicks. And I had people coming in, taking pictures of it, and taking it home, because it was they'd never seen a full chart of everything put out all at the same thing. So it was quite interesting. Yeah, uh, just sensationalists are good for their maps and charts, right? So exactly, that's right. John knows that. That's right. Uh, let's get underway. I took her advice. I'm willing to learn, and uh, so we'll just go through this. Now, there are some people here, and, and I wasn't really aware of this, which I should have been, that don't have the slightest idea what covenant theology is, as well as what dispensationalism is. So I want to try to appeal to both people. I want to try to appeal to everybody. <laughs> And so, uh, if I get a little bit uh, primitive, things you already know, that's because there are some people that are struggling with what is covenant and covenant theology. And I remember at Moody, uh, they don't teach covenant theology there, but that's where I learned it. I just learned it from reading books. And for three years, as I was hearing one thing in class, going home to my, uh, going back to my room and going through the text, I just couldn't get it, couldn't grasp it, couldn't grasp it. I just fought with it for years. So I went to seminary, and finally, the first week of seminary, the veil was opened and oh that's what they meant all these years so sometimes it's difficult to grasp what is covenant and uh, as far as I'm concerned if you're going to teach reformed theology that's what you're going to teach covenant theology uh, the five points of Calvinism fits in the context of covenant theology for me uh, if I'm going to talk about politics I'm going to talk about covenant theology because covenant theology is to me the overarching, overarching premise of scripture so here it is Unveiled. Now, you're going to have to sit closer if you want to see all that. Okay. A uh, little bit of review as well as a little bit of advancing on this whole thing. Uh, side by side is dispensationalism, covenant theology. Okay. One of the brace, basic uh, sine qua non, uh, basic premises of covenant theology or just and dispensationalism is in dispensationalism you have a radical distinction between Israel and the church what God says for Israel and what God says for the church that's uh, the that's the logic sign for or so it's either this one or it's this one they're virtually in a in a dialectic uh, tension with one another so when you you look at the text of scripture it's for Israel it's not for the church uh, you may have a little overlap, but basically you don't. Basically you don't. Uh, so this is a basic premise. The Bible has two basic me messages. Again, in covenant theology now. Uh, so I'll go back and forth like this if you want, rather than this way. Okay? So in covenant theology, Israel is the church. Now if you see, again, this is uh, three. This is not equals. Israel equals the church. That's an equivalency sign, so it's three lines, okay? Equivalency is not quite identity, but it's equivalency. Uh, Israel in the New Testament is not the church in the New Testament. And there is a confusion among dispensationalists who say Israel is the church. Well, if Israel is the church, what do you do with Romans 11? It talks about Israel and talks about the church. 
Well, there is a distinction. The Apostle Paul recognizes the distinction between Israel and the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I forget the exact verse, but we are to give place for Israel and the church and the Gentiles. The Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 20, what? Uh, 10.32 Give no occasion of stumbling to Jews, Greeks, and the church. So it divides it up into three portions there. So when you're in the New Testament text, the covenant theologian recognizes that Israel has its own distinct entity and so does the New Testament church. But if you're talking about Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, they're equivalent. They're equivalent. So when God makes promise to Old Testament Israel, he doesn't then in the New Testament transpose those promises and give them to some other group called the church. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, a fellow named Louis Burkhoff, ever read anything by Louis Burkhoff? Yes. Well, that's the kind of stuff you get in seminary. Well, he's a standard Reformed theologian. His name is Louis Burkhoff. He's dead now. He said something I don't quite agree with, and he says what God promised to Israel is now given over to the church. That's not really accurate. I know what he meant by that, and I can agree with his sentiments, but he didn't really, that's not a good way to put it. I think the best way to put it is whatever God gave to Israel, they're going to fulfill. Whatever God gave to the covenant people, only the covenant people are going to fulfill. So there was no giving of the promises to Israel, and now somebody else fulfills those. No. Uh, so this is what covenant theology means by that that Old Testament Israel is equivalent to the New Testament church or let me put it this way the Israel of the Old Testament is the Old Testament church the Old Testament church it is the church of the Old Testament it was the gathering you sit down and you talk to a dispensationalist and um, I remember in, in Bible class they challenged me I'm just one of the kids. They challenged me. You show me the church in the Old Testament because for dispensationalism, the church is not in the Old Testament. So there are no promises in the Old Testament for the church. So you can't go to the Old Testament to find promises for the church. You have to stay in the New Testament for the church's sake. And so they would challenge me, find the Old Testament in, in, in the, uh, or the church in the Old Testament. Well, I said, that depends on how you define church. If you define the church, as that which is the New Testament. If your definition of the church is basically that which was formed after the New Testament and so forth and has the empowerment of the Spirit and whatever other distinctives, then you're not going to find the church in the Old Testament. That follows. That's true. You're not going to find the New Testament church in the Old Testament. Of course you're not. But you are going to find the Old Testament church in there. So the church is there in the Old Testament. Uh, we talked about Johnny MacArthur. And, uh, and you're familiar with John MacArthur and so forth, and we're friends. So, uh, and I just sent him that book that I showed you yesterday, Dispensationalism, Yesterday, Today, and Forever, or whatever, this latest book on against dispensationalism. So he just got a copy of that one from me. Uh, <clears throat> but he'll make a distinction between Israel of the Old Testament and the Church of the New, and for covenant theology, uh, no, they're essentially the same. Now, what that means is, for the dispensationalist, you have two people of God. That's one people, that's another people. Old Testament and New Testament. 
Okay? So you essentially for dispensationalists have two peoples of God, two separate and distinct peoples of God, which means essentially you have two different plans of God, two different purposes of God. This is dispensationalism. God has two different purposes in the world, not one grand ultimate purpose, but two ultimate purposes. So they want to look, the dispensationalist wants to look at the Bible as ultimately as a duality or a dichotomy. Ultimately, there's two peoples of God, two plans of God. Uh, Ryrie in his book makes the statement that uh, the covenant theologian, the covenant theologian wants to make salvation the be and end all of history, of God's plan. He's right. Covenant theology does want to make salvation and redemption the be and end all of God's plan for the world. Not that everybody's going to get saved, but that's the overarching plan, though there's judgment involved with that, and multitudes will go to hell for rejecting, but it's because they've rejected the redemption, not simply because of existence, you know. It's because of the rejection of God, okay. So covenant theology says there's one basic plan, whereas in dispensationalism, no, the ultimate purpose of God is the glory of God, not salvation. Now, I have a lot of problems with that. So therefore, for the dispensationalist, ultimately, the plan of God for the world is not salvation, not redemption. So there are going to be some things that you look at in the Bible, uh, a plan for the earthly Jewish people, which ultimately is not redemptive. Boy, that's, that's, to me, that's really, that really gets radical. Uh, again, for the covenant theologian, there's only one people of God. So the emphasis is on the oneness. In covenant theology, it is ultimately one. From Genesis to Revelation, there's only one people of God, uh, which says there's only one plan, and that plan is redemption. Everything in the Bible is redemptive, so that every story that I look at all comes down to one story of redemption. Even when I look at Genesis chapter 1, the story of the creation thing, that has to do with redemption. Now, there's no one getting saved in Genesis chapter 1. There's nobody lost in Genesis chapter 1. Sin hasn't come in until Genesis chapter 2, 3, chapter 3. But you see, when God gave Genesis chapter 1, it wasn't independent of the plan of salvation. It wasn't as though, here's Genesis chapter 1. Nice story. We'd love to hear about it. 24-hour day, six-day creation theory, and it's good for those who are into creation research. Fine. Now we'll get into redemption. Now we'll start talking about God's plan for the world. That's Genesis chapter 3. As though Genesis chapter 1 was only created for the Creation Research Society. As though when you look at Genesis chapter 1, all we have to do, worry about in Genesis chapter 1 is, was it 24 hours or was it a day-age theory? And, it, and, all, and what happens is you lose the point of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, though it doesn't mention redemption and salvation, is the foundation to the whole story of redemption. I mean, that's Paul's argument about Adam. Adam falls into sin. Well, the only way he can fall into sin is if he wasn't in it in the first place. So... The whole story of the fall of redemption is based upon the creation account. So when we look at Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1 isn't simply to teach us nice stories about the six-day creation theory. I believe it teaches the six-day creation view. But it's foundational to redemption. There's no understanding Jesus' death on the cross, uh, let alone the fourth commandment, without understanding Genesis chapter 1. So for the covenant theologian, everything is redemptively oriented. Every story has that one single message 
Some people phrase it this way, that there is only one word of God. We talk about the word of God, right? They pick up the word of God. Read, read, in, read in the word of God. What do you read in the word of God? I don't simply say, look in the words of God. What do you read in the words of God? And the words of God grew and multiplied. That's Acts 19, right? The words of God grew and multiplied. It doesn't say the words of God. What's it say? The word of God grew and multiplied because when it talks about the expression word of God, it, it, it means more than simply the individual words of God. There's a oneness to that word, and so in covenant theology, the emphasis is on the one people of God, the one plan of redemption, therefore there is one church, rather than, uh, in, in dispensationalism, you would have two churches, but they don't want to say church in the Old Testament. They'll grant that there is a church. Now, let me give you an example. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Here is an Old Testament text that demonstrates that the church is in the Old Testament. Acts 7.38. Here it says, it gives you an Old Testament text. Acts 7, this is Stephen's defense of the faith, uh, and he's defending uh, the gospel. He's the first one, I think, that sees the real implications of the gospel. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't know. The NIV translators are supposed to be reformed, by and large. And some of this is an accurate translation. I, I, once again, I use the uh, 1901 American Standard, and uh, I like that one. It says in uh, Acts 737, 738, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel that spoke to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the living oracles to give unto us and so forth. But notice, you see, Stephen acknowledges the existence of the church in the Old Testament. That's a clear text that says the church is in the Old Testament, Acts 7.38. Now here's the dispensationalist argument. The dispensationalist argument is well, wait a minute now. Just because you have the word church doesn't mean you have the being of the church. No. So to have the word doesn't mean the church is there. I'll show you an, I'll show you an example. Turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. Now, I'm defending the dispensationalists at this point. At this moment now, I'll defend the dispensationalists. Just because it mentions that there was a church doesn't mean it's the same church. So they will grant that there was a church in the Old Testament. It's just not that it has, really has nothing to do with the New Testament church. Okay. Acts chapter 19. Uh, we didn't get to it last night. Jump over to verse 39. Read verse 39. What do you have? Do you have an NIV? No, Okay, read the NIV. I mean, read the King James. So this other okay, anybody got an NIV? Doc? Okay, anybody read it. See, that's the word church. That's ecclesia. See? Now, you tell me that the Ephesians had a church? Just because the word is used, ecclesia, does not mean that the Ephesians, the temple of the goddess Diana, the amphitheater, was a church. Well, it was a kind of a church, if you simply mean assembly. 
Aha, okay? The church simply needs assembly. Then they'll grant the argument that there is a church in the Old Testament. Okay, so we're not going to quibble over words. We want to quibble over the real reality of it. Still, their point is you've got two different peoples of God. You want to call them a church in the Old Testament? Call them a church if you will. Call it church sub one. And the New Testament, church sub two. Small c in the Old Testament, capital C going backwards in the New Testament. Just as long as you recognize as a dispensationalist that you've got two plans, two purposes, one redemptive, one not redemptive. So the Old Testament plan is ultimately not redemptive. It's for the glory of God, but ultimately not redemptive. So when the dispensationalist looks at the plan that God has, God has for Israel, it's not ultimately a redemptive plan in Christ. That has powerful implications. Uh, God has a purpose for Israel, which is ultimately not redemptive. Oh, they'll experience redemption. Many will experience salvation, but ultimately it's not redemption. The covenant theologian reacts to that. And, ah, no, it is ultimately redemptive. Okay. So basically, for the covenant theologian, there's only one covenant. For the dispensationalist, the concept of covenant doesn't really apply to the New Testament church. So... So if the dispensationalist comes to a, a Presbyterian OP church or a PCA is consistent with their covenant theology, we constantly talk about the covenant and the covenant people. In our church, we talk about the covenant. We sing the songs of the covenant, the law of the covenant, the word of the covenant, covenant salvation. You talk about covenant children, don't you? You talk about covenant children. My father doesn't know what covenant children are. I was a covenant child in my upbringing, in my dad's home. Uh, Baptist home. In fact, I was a covenant child. He never thought of me. The concept of covenant just doesn't, isn't there. It's gone. Uh, so I want to emphasize the concept of covenant, but a dispensation was covenant was simply Old Testament. It's Jewish. It's not New Testament. Okay? Uh, all right. Well, here's the dispensationalist response. There is a covenant in the New Testament and you can talk about the church in some kind of a covenant but not the Jewish covenant uh, the covenants that God made Abraham uh, especially Sinai with Moses especially David and the New Covenant are essentially for the Jews not the New Testament let me give you a defense of the dispensational view turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 8 Hebrews chapter 8. Now, what I'm going to give you now is the dispensationalist argument of why this does not refer to the church. It may be written in the New Testament, but it's not for the church. Remember, what is the book of Hebrews written to? Jews, not Christians. Or, if you don't like that one, Christian Jews at least, with the emphasis on Christian Jews, okay? So there's not a whole lot that we Christian Gentiles uh, can uh, get from this except by way of application in a, in a limited sense. But take a look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. Hebrews 8, 8. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they continued not my covenant, I regarded them not, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put their laws in their hearts and so forth and so on. There is nothing about the church in there. 
There's nothing about the church. Do you see the church in there, Pat? Do you see the church in there? If you're going to be a literalist now, uh, there's nothing about the church in there. It is referring to, it says, Israel and Judah. So how in heaven's name do you covenant theologians make this apply to the church? Because again, covenant theology says there is only one covenant and all the covenants are for the church. Old Testament and New Testament. There's still ultimately only one covenant. All the historical revelations of the historical manifestations from Adam and Noah and Abraham and blah, blah, all the different covenants boil down for the covenant theologians essentially to be one covenant, one grand covenant, and we give a theological term to that called the covenant of grace. <coughs> the expression covenant of grace. You can't find the term covenant of grace in the, in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Neither is the Trinity in the Bible. So, but we believe in one covenant of grace. You take all the covenants down from, from after the fall and so forth, they're called that covenant, that one covenant. Actually, I would include the covenant God made with Adam in there as well. But essentially, there's only one covenant because there's only one people, one plan, one church. There's a wholeness to the covenant. Here you've got all the covenants. Again, uh, the dispensationalist looks at Hebrews and says, see, specifically, it is not referring to the church. Uh, turn to Luke uh, 22. 2220. 2220. Ah, but now I'm going to uh, show the dispensationalist another Bible verse, okay? Now show the dispensationalist the Bible verse. And this is the Lord's Supper. Uh, Luke 2220. And the cup in like manner after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, even that which is poured out for you, and so forth. Okay, there it says. The whole Lord's Supper is based upon the fact of the new covenant, which Jeremiah 31 says. Even though the new covenant is addressed to Israel and Judah, here Jesus says, it's your. It's my blood of the covenant, which is your. So the Lord's Supper for us is, is crucial because at the, at the crux of the Lord's Supper is the combining of Jeremiah 31 with the New Testament. And after all, what is the New Testament called? The New Covenant. Okay, so the New Testament is the New Covenant. And the whole foundation of the New Testament is the New Covenant. And there is the text, New Covenant. Turn to uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, having read Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8, having seen that it's addressed to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, having seen it doesn't literally or letterally say the church, granted it doesn't say that, nor does it say the Jew in there. Jeremiah 31 doesn't say the Jew, if you're going to be literal about it. It's the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, here's the Apostle Paul talking about his ministry, verse 6. Paul's ministry in the New Testament is called 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Who made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of a letter that kills, but of a spirit that gives life. 
So there you not only have the Lord's Supper called the New Covenant, founded on the New Covenant, the blood of the New Covenant, you also have Paul's ministry. And everybody recognizes Paul's ministry is a New Testament a Christian ministry, not Jewish, but Christian ministry. And it's called a minister of the New Covenant. Uh, anybody, what's the NIV say, verse 6 says? NIV. Okay. Uh, yeah, it still doesn't help out because you see, here's the trick. It doesn't say the new covenant. It says a new covenant. Yeah. See. Oh, I don't know. So it's an indefinite. There's no article, which simply means there is a new covenant. So. Some will grant that there is a new covenant for the church. It is not the new covenant. Now, how do you respond to that, Doc? Right, what would you say to him? I don't know. I just learned. Yeah, you go like that after a while, you know. And you go, whoa, whoa. Well, of course there's not an article there, you know. It's been an arthritis or without the article. It does get frustrating uh, when it says uh, he is the minister of a new covenant. Oh, nuts. It doesn't say the covenant. All right. So I, I'm, uh, they're right. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Ryrie says yes. You've got two new covenants, one for Israel and one for the church. The one for Israel is in the Old Testament. That's Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31. But this one here, in 2 Corinthians 3, that's the other one, which is totally different. Even though it'll have the same words, it's totally different. Uh, okay, we, we don't want to get hung up with whether there's an article B there or a missing article, or whether it's A or the. You don't want to get hung up with that. And sometimes that happens if you're arguing with a Jehovah Witnesses, where they say Jesus is not the God, but he's a God. And that's a baffle gab. Uh, you know what baffle gab is? It's just, it's trash you know it doesn't mean anything so what you know it's it's fluff uh, what you want to know is the context because what's the context of second Corinthians chapter 3 what does Paul bring up he brings up Moses versus the new covenant you see he brings up and he calls it the old covenant chapter 3 look down to verse 14 what's he say but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant the same remains it being now revealed to them that it is done away with in Christ so right from the context he contrasts this a new covenant with the old covenant specifically dealing with Moses and death and all this other stuff so the context reveals that it's talking about the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about and Jeremiah was real clear he says I will make a new covenant not like the old covenant it's going to be a new covenant, right? A new covenant. So you're going to have to use the word A there anyway. So don't get uh, hung up with whether it's A or Z's in there. You know, John? No, there's no definite article there either. Right. Right. That's why if you don't know Greek and someone snows you with the Greek, be careful of that. You know, don't let it... Oh, no, he knows the Greek, and so forth. It's the context that ultimately decides the meaning of the word, not the lexicon. You know, it's how the word is used. Uh, if, uh, if there are any Baptists here, 
where I'm, I'm, my background is at, we can't just resort to a lexicon, look up the word baptizo, it says immersed. And that's, that's the end of the argument. The lexicon is not my standard of faith and practice. Scripture is my standard of faith. And how the word baptism is used is our whole point. Mike? Well, they're special people, yeah. They have a separate, distinct plan from the church. That's their whole point. Well, according to... Well, uh, they wouldn't have a place in the church if they want to maintain their Old Testament standing. You're right. And they're going to go back to that Old Testament standing in the kingdom age, which isn't now, which is the millennial age where the temple is going to be rebuilt and the sacrifices uh, reconstituted and all, that, everything, all the whole Jewish age is going to come back in this, uh, this uh, latter millennial age, which is not the church age and we have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know what you... I know what, that's how I press it to them, too. I don't think they'd want to drive that conclusion. Yeah. It was the book of Hebrews that kept me alive in studying covenant theology. Just the book of Hebrews. Yeah. But you're right to suppress that, that the Jew that gets converted today, in effect, loses his Old Testament promises. Now, okay, let's move on to the next thing. Okay. Number four. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the distinction by the dispensationalists is between... There's the earthly seed, which is earthly, and then there's the spiritual seed, which is heavenly. The earthly promises go to the earthly seed. The spiritual promises go to the, the heavenly or the spiritual seed. So once again, when you look at the promises of the Old Testament or the prophecies of the Old Testament, you have to look with, with, with this bifurcation, you know, this, this duality. Uh, you have to decide whether this is an earthly promise, and it's there, therefore it's not for the church, uh, if it's a spiritual promise, okay, it can be for the church. So you've got to be careful about how you divide that up. For covenant theology, the, the promises only and always and have forever and none has never been the same. I mean, has never been different. That all the promises only go to the spiritual seed. All the promises of God always go to the spiritual seed. Good. I was just glad you brought that up. Okay, I'll put my dispensational cap on. This is a very good one. Uh, Romans 2, 28 and 29. Here's a dispensationalist interpretation of that. Are we picking all this up? Okay. Uh, Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is, is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You see, all that's teaching you is who a true Jew is, not who a true Christian is. That's teaching you a true Jew was one who was circumcised of heart. Now, don't, don't translate that into a true Christian. He's talking about Jews there. I mean, the context is about Jews. Verse 17, if thou bearest the name Jew, not Christian, and you rest in the law, and so forth and so on. 
The true Jew is one who is circumcised of heart. Now what do you want to do with that? Is that convincing? Well, John's stubborn, that's all. Well, again, how do you deal with that? What would you, what would you say? Yeah, to that. It's only referring to he that is the true Jew, that's all, which is Abraham. That's not referring to McElhenney, it's referring to Abraham. Exactly. Well, well, for sure they're dividing up the promises of God. Yeah, that's true. And, and he's just clarifying who a true Jew is, not who a true Christian is. Oh, you did have to bring that up, didn't you? He's a Christian now. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have those promises. That's right. Well, uh, did something with him. That's true. But here's how I would answer that. Here's how I would answer that. In the context, again, the context starts back with uh, verse 25. And we go back to the first of the chapter. We won't. Verse 25 says this. For circumcision indeed profits if you are a doer of the law. But if you be a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Verse 26. Is therefore the uncircumcised one now, who is the uncircumcised one? What do you call the uncircumcised one? A Gentile. Okay. If the uncircumcised one keeps the ordinances of the law, shall not his condition of uncircumcision, shall not his uncircumcision be accounted for and reckoned for veritable circumcision? Not true. Verse 27. And shall not the uncircumcised, which is by nature the Gentile, if he fulfills the law, judge thee who with the letter and circumcision are the transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. The he there, in verse 28, is a definite pronoun which refers back to the uncircumcised one. He is a Jew. And then it goes on to describe. He is the Jew. So, so it, he doesn't leave, Paul doesn't even leave you hanging there. He gives you a, a distinctive pronoun. He is not a Jew who was one, but verse 29, but he is a Jew who was one in circumcised inwardly. Now, the next thing to follow, realize is, of course, chapter divisions are arbitrary in Romans. Who is the paradigm circumcised one in Romans? Who is the historic character who is the paradigm of the true Jew? Pardon me? Well, I was thinking, other than Christ, what other historical characters does Paul bring up? Abraham, Abraham. Yeah, that's in chapter 4, you see, so don't stop with the, the chapter divisions. He brings up Abraham. See, Abraham's not a Jew. His father's a Jew. He's not a Jew. Shemite, for sure, but he's not a Jew. Don't equate Shemites with Jews. Uh, Jews are Shemites, but the Shemites are not Jews. And so Abraham is the Gentile who's circumcised. So I'll argue that he is one who is a Jew inwardly turns out to be Abraham in the context. Okay. So in the Old Testament you have this distinction between the earthly promises and so forth versus the spiritual promises. Again, uh, the covenant theologian says, no, 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 no. The, the promises, whatever they are, are always and only fulfilled in the spiritual seed. Now when we say spiritual seed, when I say spiritual seed, I'm not talking about invisible ethereal seed. 
a ghostly seed, the spiritual seed. Isaac. We're going to talk about Isaac tonight. Isaac was the spiritual son of Abraham. Uh, Jacob was the spiritual son of Abraham and Isaac. Esau was not a spiritual son. Now you could say he was a physical son, that's true. But the promises weren't made to the physical people and therefore the physical people are going to receive those promises. You look in Romans chapter 4 again. Romans chapter 4. Verse 13, Romans 4:13. Again, the premise is the, the promises are always made to the spiritual seed and they're only fulfilled in the spiritual seed. That's the way it's always been, it's never changed. Romans 4:13. For not through the law was the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he should be heir of the world, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, verse 14, for if they that are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promises of none effect. For the law works wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression. For this cause it is of faith, that it may be according to grace, to the end that the promise, now here's the key expression, verse 16, to the end that the promise may be guaranteed or sure to what? You looking at that? To what? All the seed, whether they're of the law or whether they're of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of his law. So it specifically says that the promise, how many promises are there? Okay, let me ask the same question again. Give me a different answer. How many promises are there? Pardon me? Well, you, you give me that answer. Now give me another answer, which is just as right. How many promises are there? Two or more. Right. I gave that woman away. Pardon? Absolutely. Uh, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Let me show you the interplay here. Uh, the, 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 uh, the subtle ambiguity. I think I'd like to write a message on that one. The subtle ambiguities of Scripture where you come across and say, well, I don't know what it says. It was written that way. And there's a purpose behind that. Um, but here you get a little bit of that. It's real clear when you figure that out. Galatians chapter 3 Look at verse 16. Now, the whole point of Galatians chapter 3 is talking about being justified by faith, not justified by works. He roots being justified by faith in the covenant God made with Abraham. Now, Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham were the promises spoken, and to his seed he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and thy seed which is Christ. See, so it mentions promises, plural, that's at least two. Verse 17, Now this I say, a covenant confirmed beforehand by God, the law which came 430 years afterwards, does not disannul it, so as to make what? What do you have? The promise of none effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no more of promise. Now there it is in the singular. So he can play on the word promises or promise. Ultimately, there's only one promise because there's only one covenant. But historically, the covenant was divided up. We can talk about a variety of covenants. Abraham, Sinai, David, and so forth, but there's still only one covenant. You can talk about a variety of promises. There was a set given to Abraham, which wasn't quite given to Moses and Sinai. There's a different set of promises. We've got to realize the distinctiveness in these covenants, too. But there is an overarching unity, commonality, that unites the whole Bible. 
So there's a d- distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't forget that. The covenant theologian, even though he says there's one people, one plan, one church, ultimately one covenant, there still is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're not Old Testament Israel. We're New Testament Israel. There are certain things in the Old Testament that are not applicable for us in the New Testament. Thank God for that. Wow. And we're delivered from that. But that diversity doesn't supersede the overarching unity. And that's our whole point. We want to stress unity in plan, unity in purpose, unity in, in Christ's work. Okay. Uh, fifth. Let's finish this up. Uh, I realize we can say more about this. But again, uh, the spirituality refers to what the spirit does in the heart. Uh, number five. And dispensationalism makes the distinction between Jesus is king and Jesus is head. Jesus is king, that's for Israel. Jesus is head, that's for the church. Nowhere, I'll challenge you now, nowhere does it say that Jesus is king of the church. He doesn't say Jesus is king of the church. Anybody find me a text? When would he good? I've already looked. Nowhere does it say Jesus is king of the church. We talk about Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords and stuff like that. And the fact that Jesus is king, he's not exercising his kingship now. This is the dispensationalist argument. So, they'll make a distinction between Jesus as king. I remember in class, uh, I was a song leader in my class. There was a favorite song, two favorite songs I loved to sing in class. One was uh, the Christmas carol. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. The Savior reigns. The Savior's king and all this other stuff. I love to sing that one in class. That was great. Everybody else liked to sing that one too. But that was written by someone who was a covenant theologian anyway and he didn't know what he meant. He was a poet. Uh, there was another song that I really liked too to sing at Moody and it was called I Love Thy Kingdom Lord. Now, they didn't like the notion of kingdom. The kingdom idea is, is a vapid idea. It just doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. We talk about the church in dispensationalism. You talk about the church. You talk about the headship of Christ. talk about the lordship of Christ. But Jesus is not king. Jesus is not king. Don't, don't confuse that. That's in dispensationalism. Okay, in covenant theology, covenant, covenant theology says there's no difference between the headship of Christ and the kingship of Christ. Covenant theology says Jesus is king is the same as Jesus is head. There isn't any difference. Okay, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, 32 and 33. Luke chapter 1. Here's the promise. This is the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. Recognizing that the Davidic promise wasn't made to a Christian, it was made to a Jew. So does it have anything to do with the church? It's really the question. Or the New Testament church is the issue. When you look at Luke chapter 1, this is the promise given to uh, the Virgin Mary. Uh, Luke 1, 32. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, pray tell, where is the church there? It doesn't mention the church. Jesus is not the king of the church. He is not king. If he is king, he's just not exercising his rule, that's all. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth, as Matthew 28, 28, 18, for sure. He has all authority, but he's not king. 
He has all power, but he's not king. He's been exalted above the right hand, the majesty on high in this age and in the age to come, but he is not king. At least he's not king in the Old Testament Davidic sense. And so what was offered to Israel at the beginning, what was offered to Israel was the kingship of Christ. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingship of Christ was offered. Israel rejected that offer of the kingship and Jesus switched the message. The message changes and it becomes the gospel message. Okay. Okay, there are some dispensationalists that would have said the cross would have been not would have been unnecessary. No modern dispensationalist that I know would say that. Ryrie wouldn't say that. You could press the point with them though. Yeah, you could press the point with them. That's what, that's what we would press on them. Now, nowadays, it was, oh, no, no, no. But the old-timers, they said, yeah. This is what I was taught in school. This is uh, 20 years ago, what I was taught. Yes, there wouldn't have been need for the atoning work of Christ if Israel had accepted Christ as their Messiah. That's an awful thing to say. And, and you see the implications of that. Uh, what is the gospel? During this, uh, in dispensationalism, what is the gospel in the tribulation era, in, in dispensationalism, there's a called the Great Tribulation. The church is gone, supposedly raptured out, and then whoever is left, a body of people who are believers in Jesus are left. What gospel do they hear? Well, it's the gospel of the kingdom, but not the gospel of the blood of Christ. Just start to go like that with them. Uh, are they baptized by the Spirit? As we are? No, they're not baptized by the Spirit. They're justified by faith. Yeah, they're justified by faith. Are they born again? No, not necessarily. I mean, I had professors wonder whether the new birth process was in the Old Testament, whether anybody was born again in the Old Testament. And I look back at that and say, wow, how could you miss that one? I mean, there's just no life without the new birth. Doesn't David even kind of allude to that in his expression of creating me a clean heart? I mean, isn't that the whole point of put a new law, right? The new law in you is the new birth process. But some of my professors were, were they're serious and devout Christians. They just thought that David could, could get away with being saved and justified without the new birth process. Uh, okay. But in this text, now how do you deal with this text, though? He shall be great. Uh, the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, not the church. Okay, John. You are the kingdom. Oh. Acts chapter 20-something here. Let's deal with that. A look at Acts. 20, verse 24 and 25. Yeah, the book of Acts is important in this area as well. Acts 20, verses 24 and 25. And this is Paul's preaching. And, but I hold not my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may accomplish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God and now behold, I know that you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, shall see my face no more. So there you've got an equating of the gospel of the grace of God and the kingdom. Now there is another text that's even closer uh, balanced than this one here. Okay, let me uh, finish up with Hebrews chapter... I haven't fully dealt with all this. Later on if you want to talk about it, okay. 
But let me finish up with this one. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3 again. Hebrews chapter 3. This was always a sticky wicket for me, too. Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, my holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. That's interesting right there. Because if you want to say that he's talking to the Jewish Christians, this is the heavenly calling. Okay? Heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus, verse 2, who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also was Moses in all his house. Now, he's, very, he's virtually quoting uh, Numbers, the book of Numbers, that is. Now, look at verse 2 again. Who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also was Moses in all his house. That's God's house. Verse 3. For he hath been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by so much as he that built the house has more honor than the house. Verse 4. For every house is builded by someone, but he that built all things is God. Verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken, but Christ as his son over his house, whose house are what? We. There it distinctively uses the house, the house, the house, the house. Same expression used in uh, Jeremiah 31, house of Israel, house of Judah. Here's the house, the house, the house, the house. This is Numbers 12, 7. Numbers 12, 7 says, Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God. As a matter of fact, whose house does that turn out to be? Us. And the us there is the Christian. With the heavenly calling, with the apostle and high priest, and the confession, Jesus Christ. So there Hebrews identifies the Old Testament house with us. Not just New Testament, but with us, as a matter of fact. Moses was a member in that house. As a servant, uh, the word servant there... Uh, is the word therapeutic. Our word for therapeutic is the idea of a healer servant. Uh, uh, he was a servant in the house. Christ is over the house. We are the house. So Moses ministered to whom? Us. Moses ministered to us. And that's what it says. Uh, uh, verse 5. Moses indeed was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. What is the testimony of the things which were afterward? After what? After he died? What's the afterward appeal to? Go ahead. Okay. After Christ. That's us. Yeah. We're in the afterward. We're in the after period. Uh, Hebrews says this is the afterward, or the, another expression that uses the end times, the last days. These are all the expressions that are used in the church age descriptive of the church age, same expressions used in the Old Testament. We're the house. Okay, I'll stop with that. Unless you have any questions. Have any questions about that? Yeah, okay, I'll do it real fast. Uh, if you have to go, that's fine. Uh, I, I brought this up last week, uh, yesterday. Uh, there is this ruse of uh, a literalism versus a spiritualism. Uh, uh, dispensationalism is literalistic and uh, covenant theology is not literalistic. That's the ruse. You know what a ruse is. Yeah. Doesn't mean anything. Baffle gab again. Don't get confused with that. Uh, the covenant theologian is just as literal as uh, the dispensationalist literal. The issue isn't being literal. 
It's the nature of that literalism. I'll contend that that literalism of the Old Testament is Jewish literalism. In the covenant theology, it's Christological. It's Christ literalism, Christian literalism. You look at that in the light of Christ, not in the light of the Old Testament, but in the light of the New Testament. And the old Augustinian phrase is the one we always use. John, what is it? The old is revealed in the new, and the new is concealed in the old. That's Augustine's phrase. Powerful meaning to that. The old is revealed in the new, and the new is concealed in the old. The old, new is concealed in the old, the old is revealed in the new. That simply means that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament and so forth. And, uh, okay, one more text, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. This is a super controversial text. So I won't go through all of it. But let me point out verse 27. Uh, and this is where you have your big arguments. We had a fun time with this one. We used to go around on this one over and over again. Loved it. There is a Jewish way to look at this and there is a Christian way to look at this. Now that's a moot point too. You can argue with me over that too. Um, one of the best commentaries I've found that deals with that argument is a fellow named Hengstenberg. He's dead. But his commentary is still somewhere. Somebody has it. On Daniel chapter 9. Uh, uh, E.J. Young's commentary on Daniel is also an excellent one. So E.J. Young, who was also dead, but he was a contemporary of ours. E.J. Young on Daniel is excellent because he does deal with covenant theology and dispensationalism, especially when you get to uh, chapter 9. Verse 27. Look at verse 27. And this is where the controversy is. And he shall confirm a covenant with many in one week, or for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease. Upon the wing of abomination shall come one that makes desolate, and so forth and so on. Now the argument is over who is the pronoun referring to. And he shall make, uh, confirm the covenant with many for a week. He shall confirm the covenant. Now that's where the bone of contention is between the covenant theologian and the dispensationalist. Again, those are only two alternative interpretations. There's a host of others flying out there too, you know. We haven't settled it just because we've shot both dispensationalists and covenant theologians. Other characters are flying around, so they're, they're two bits at this. And he shall make firm. The dispensationalists will look at this text not in the light of Christ. They will look at this text in the light of the Old Testament, essentially. The he there is the Antichrist. And he shall make uh, confirm a covenant with many in one week. The he shall confirm is the Antichrist. So again, the accent of the prophecy is on the Antichrist. And dispensational prophecy, dispensational conferences, the whole accent is on the Antichrist. You want to throw, uh, you want to get a lot of people out of the church, what you do is throw a prophecy conference because in the prophecy conference you're going to identify who the Antichrist is. Everybody wants to know who the Antichrist is. I know who he is. But, in covenant theology, when you look at this, the covenant theologian wants to look at this Christologically. That is, we want to look at, look at this in the light of Christ. And he shall confirm a covenant with many in a week. That's Christ that's the one that has done this. Now, there's a whole lot of exegetical rationale that I could go into that I don't want to. It'll, for our purposes, that's not necessary. When you look at Isaiah 53, who's Isaiah 53 talking about? And everybody knows Isaiah 53, right? It's readily understood. We can readily see it as Christ. The dispensationalist recognizes it as Christ. That's one of those clear texts in the Old Testament that's referring to Christ. 
Now you talk to a Jewish person. Who's he going to say it refers to? Anything but Christ, yeah. He'll say Israel. He may have a number of other rationales for it, right. And they talk about the Jewish people and so forth. Now to us it is so clear, and I think it really is clear, and you have to be blinded not to see that, but that's really if you want to convince someone, how do I look at the Old Testament? Start with Isaiah 53 if you want. There, we look at Isaiah 53, not as a matter of being literal or non-literal. If you go to Isaiah 53 simply with the idea of, let's be literal about it, you miss the point. Uh, you can't take Isaiah 53 literally because it doesn't refer to Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah 53 doesn't refer to Jesus of Nazareth literally. So if you want to play the literal game, you're going to get lost in that thing too. A rabbi, Pincus Lapid, who is a New Testament scholar, he'll tie up a knot. Isaiah 53 is not literally talking to Jesus. So if you want to play literal, scratch Isaiah 53. So it's not literalism as such that we're dealing with. We want to look at what's the meaning of the text? What does it teach us? And we look at that text in the light of Christ. It's referring to Christ. But not just Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52, 54, 51, 55, 50, 50, 50 blah, blah. Goes on. The whole book refers to Isaiah. And then we can keep on going out. See Daniel chapter 9 in there, too. It's all Christological. Okay. I'll stop there. Questions? Anybody? I, I really appreciate you uh, sitting and, and tolerating this. Thank you very much. Let's go eat. Now, tomorrow at 4, they have another meeting. So, we won't have this at 4. But tomorrow, starting around 2 o'clock, I'm just going to come here. If anybody wants to talk about theology or Bible text or anything, I'll be here at 2 o'clock tomorrow. So, Okay, you're dismissed. No meeting at 1.30, no meeting at 4, but I'll be here around 2 for anybody that wants to talk about the Bible. I'll just... Leave it. Right. Kvik. <laughs>